All right, well, if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them and open them to James chapter 1. As we continue looking at the incredible book of James together on Sunday morning. And this morning, we'll pick it up in verse 12. Verse 12. James writes, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, with which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits to his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I remember hearing a story of a pastor who was blessed to have in his congregation a very dear Christian woman. Unfortunately, as she aged, she was no longer able to live on her own and was required to move into an assisted living facility. But because of her incredible uh, encouragement that she was to the pastor, he made a point to go visit her weekly there in that assisted living facility. And one week, he was running late and wasn't able to have dinner before going to meet her. And she, he ran over there. He was starving from the day, very hungry. Stomach was growling. And he was led into the facility, led into her room, but she was in another part of the building finishing getting her hair done. And while he was there, he noticed that she had a bowl of peanuts on uh, the table. Well, because he was so hungry, he began to eat those peanuts. Just one, then two, then two more. By the time she got back, he had eaten the entire bowl of peanuts. When she walked in, uh, he stood up to greet her. They sat together and he said, well, before we talk, I have to confess that I was hungry, and while I was waiting, I started nibbling on the peanuts that you had in the bowl, and I unfortunately, I ate all the peanuts. Well, she loved her pastor, and she was so thankful for his, his visit that she wanted to encourage him and say, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it at all. I understand that you are hungry. And she says, now, please know that at my age, with the teeth that are in the condition that they are, all I can do is suck the chocolate off of them and put them back in the bowl. (laughs) 
Temptation can take us places we don't want to go. And we can suffer consequences that we don't want to suffer. As James began his letter to his recipients, he talked about trials. And those trials producing in us the character that God desires to produce within us. But he immediately then changes gears and begins to talk about temptation. Now, in the Greek language, the word that is used for trial and the word that is used for temptation is exactly the same. Periosum, which means just that, a a trial, a a temptation. It can be used in many different ways, and, and therefore it must be determined and interpreted and translated according to the context in which we find it. And he uses it initially to show that trials can have benefit within our life. But then he moves quickly into the discussion of temptation because often during those times of trials, we can slip into the temptation of questioning God's goodness. When we go through difficult times as individuals, it is easy to begin to believe that God doesn't care, that God doesn't know what we are going through, that God isn't good, that God doesn't love us, that God doesn't have the best in mind for us. And James wants to assure his readers that that's absolutely not the case, that God always has our best in mind. And the work that he is doing in us, he is faithful to complete. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And as such, God is always more concerned with eternity than he is with our temporal comforts. God wants you to become the man, the woman that he always intended you to be and allows trials in our lives to draw out that character, to refine that character within us that we may again be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. But during those times of difficulty, we can also become tempted. As Warren Wiersbe wrote in his commentary, He said, we may ask, why did James connect the two, that is, trial and temptation? What is the relationship between testing without and temptation within? Simply this, if we are not careful, the testings on the outside may become temptations on the inside. When our circumstances are difficult, we may find ourselves complaining against God, questioning His love and resisting His will. At this point, Satan provides us with an opportunity to escape the difficulty. This opportunity is none other than temptation. If you remember, when Abraham arrived in Canaan, he discovered that there was a famine there. But he was not able to care for his flocks and herds due to that famine, And this was a trial of opportunity to see how God would have provided for him. But Abraham turned it into a moment of temptation and ventured down to Egypt. God had to chasten Abraham to bring him back to a place of obedience and blessing. So often when we find ourselves with our backs against the wall, we look for wiggle room to get out from that position. 
But it's often at that moment in time that God is about to do one of the greatest works in our lives. And in that trial, in that experience with God, we see the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God displayed. Again, when Israel was wandering through the wilderness, the nation often turned testings into temptations and tempted the Lord. No sooner had they been delivered from Egypt that, they, that their water supply vanished and they had to march for three days without water. And when they did finally find water, it was so bitter that they could not drink it. Immediately, they began to murmur and to blame God. They turned a testing into a temptation, and they failed. The pastor, Chuck Swindoll, he said and wrote, Many Christians are supersaturated with education, biblical knowledge, inspiring examples of moral success, and sobering warnings from moral failures. Yet far too many have driven headlong into temptation, suffering disaster at work, church, and at home. Temptation knows no limits. It respects no title. It plays no favorites. It ignores all human obstacles, cares nothing about the time of day or night, and camouflages itself in any situation, prepared to pounce at any moment. Temptation has many faces, stealing, lying, gossiping, cheating, envy, striving for popularity, vying for power. The list seems endless. And one, as Warren Worsby summed it up this way, a temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way, always outside the will of God. We must be careful that when we go through times of trials, we do not allow those trials to turn into temptations. That we rely on God, trust God, and wait on God in those moments. And James encourages us to do that by stating in verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved... He will receive the crown of life with which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When he describes the person blessed, and the word man here is a general term, man or woman in the Greek. That word blessed here means pertaining to being happy with implication of enjoying favorable circumstances. We would say it this way. He would be fortunate. She would be fortunate. God wants to spare us the consequences of sin that we introduce into our lives. If we obey the Lord and we do not succumb to temptation at those moments, we eliminate those consequences by not falling in the first place. Throughout the Bible, there are numerous examples of the heroes mentioned within it as they had fallen into temptation, the consequences that they reaped afterwards. But notice that he also includes, James that is, includes the word endurance. To maintain a belief or a course of action in the face of great opposition. Standing one's ground, hold out, endure, for all of us will be tempted. 
that word endurance takes with it agony. That sometimes it is very difficult to withstand the temptations that we allow to well up within us. And that's truly where these temptations originate, within us. We believe often that the temptation is the item or the, uh, it's the thing in front of us that is tempting us. But in actuality, James is going to show us that it's not that item, it's not that thing, it's actually a desire within us where the temptation originates. And when one endures the temptation, notice that he then calls that person approved. Meaning that the genuineness of your faith is demonstrated by saying to, your, saying to all in the resistance of that temptation that God is more important than the fulfillment of your flesh. That God's obedience to the Lord is premier. And whatever would take me away from that is vastly secondary. It shows and demonstrates that there a new work has begun in you. One who doesn't have a God conscience within them, meaning awareness of God's existence, of who he is, the new life that he has given us, doesn't care about the temptations that are around them, doesn't care about allowing the flesh to indulge on those things. But you and I, who are new creations in Christ, we demonstrate that fact by resisting the temptations that we encounter. Ultimately, receiving again this crown of life, this reward for all eternity. I thoroughly believe that many Christians don't realize what will happen the moment after they die. Often it is summarize is it well i die and i go to heaven well that is correct a believer in jesus christ to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord but what happens after that paul tells us that all of us as believers in jesus christ will stand before the bema seat of christ and we will be evaluated not for the base on the basis of uh, or for the for the um evidence of getting into heaven or entering into the favor of God. We've all, we've received that through Jesus Christ. But what we will experience is an evaluation on how we have used the new life that God has given us. And Paul describes that. And after being evaluated, we will be rewarded with the crown of life. That crown of life will then be thrown at the feet of Christ in Revelations chapter 5. So he says it's important that your enduring temptation here and now will have an effect for all eternity. It'll reverberate throughout all eternity in your endurance of temptation today. But he wants us to be clear concerning the origins of temptation. Notice with me in verse 13. For let no one say when he is tempted, for I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So, it would be wrong for us to believe that when we experience temptation, 
to believe that it is God who is tempting us. For God is incapable of tempting us because God himself is not tempted by evil. And therefore, God will not tempt us for the purpose of destroying us, bringing us down. When God allows trials in our life, God knows what the effect of those trials will be even before he allows them to occur. In the master's hand and in the omniscience of God, he can allow such things knowing that trials will draw out from us the character in which he desires to draw out from us. But he does not tempt us. Temptation is a, is a vehicle that Satan uses to derail the people of God. Temptation is the primary weapon that, God, or that uh, Satan uses to destroy the lives of individuals. How do I know that? How do I know that that's Satan's primary weapon? In the two greatest campaigns that Satan ever had to wage, he used the vehicle of temptation. He used the methodology of temptation. When it came to Adam and Eve, he used temptation to destroy the perfection of God's creation. When it came to the assault on Jesus Christ in the wilderness, hopefully to destroy his ability to atone for the sins of the world, he used the methodology of temptation. Therefore, I would have to conclude that the greatest weapon that Satan has is temptation. Satan has created an entire world that contains the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The world that Satan created has every element within us that would draw us away from God. So when we are tempted and we are lured by the elements of the world around us, let us know and understand that Satan architected it that way to destroy you, to bring you down. Because again, this is his primary weapon against Christians, against God's people. Once we realize that, we can prepare for that, can't we? Once we realize that Satan truly only has one string on his guitar and he comes at us in a very specific manner, then we can prepare our hearts and minds for that, can't we? We can be ready, knowing that he you know, roams as a lying, seeking whom he may destroy. But it is not God who tempts us. For then James goes on to explain where temptation actually originates. But each one, verse 14, is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Number one, temptation begins within us and it is a product of our own desires, the desires of the flesh. Now we see that Satan doesn't play fairly. Because within our flesh, there are what are considered natural desires. And any one of those natural desires or God-given desires can be exploited by Satan. It can be used in an unprescribed manner. For example, 
God created the intimacy, physical intimacy between husband and wife. But if that's taken outside the context of the marriage relationship, then Satan can destroy that individual through, you know, insatiable lusts that of course are fueled by the various elements of our society. And of course, further exploited by pornography itself. Satan can take a good thing and exploit it. We have to make the decision to say, I will use these things, I will fulfill these natural appetites the way God would have me to fulfill them. So it begins within us, in our minds, in our hearts. That's where temptation begins. And that's what must be addressed. Did you notice that Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2 made it abundantly clear that we were not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That renewal takes place as we read the Word of God. And it allows us to deal with things as God would have us to deal with them. But knowledge alone is insufficient. The Old Testament saints had knowledge of God's will through the law, but could not fulfill it. So what God did was not only give us the knowledge, but he gave us the spirit to fulfill that. To allow us to rise above our own natural fallen existence. And to deal with the desires and to keep them into the confines of God's prescribed manner. When he talks about desires, he's talking about the word lust means all kinds of desires. And not necessarily sexual passions. The normal desires of life were given to us by God and of themselves are not sinful. But become sinful when we use them in an ungodly fashion. Then he moves on to give us two more words concerning temptation that can best be described by the word deception. Number two, deception. Notice what he says in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away, there's the first word, by his own desires and enticed. And the best illustration that I can give you concerning this is an angling term for fishing. I love to fish. I love fishing. And they call it fishing because you're not always guaranteed to catch. Trust me, I know. But we use lures. We use bait to attract the fish. We appeal to their natural uh, instincts, right? Hunger or the attraction of a lure to to, um, give a flight or fight response. And ultimately to catch them as they bite on to that lure or they they bite on to that bait. And then they are ours. That's what the term drawn away or enticed really means. Satan will bait you. He will bait you. He knows where you are weak. He understands your vulnerabilities and will exploit them. And will bait you into temptation. Here's the remedy. Don't take the bait. Have you ever met a person or know a person that just knows how to push your buttons? Just knows those areas of sensitivity or to get you riled up and provoked and just 
They're just masters at it. You know, they can dial you up faster than a telephone. They're provoking you. They're looking for a response from you. And the key is not to entertain them and not to fall into that provocation. To know what is happening and to understand that I'm being baited, that I would be drawn away and that I would be caught as a prey to sin. But the third D word is the word disobedience. The word disobedience. I remember in the Old Testament when Lot was given the opportunity by Abraham to choose the portion of land that he would have. In Genesis 13, Lot looked about and he saw the well-watered plains of Jordan. And it looked appealing to him. It looked like the better piece of land. And so he took it not realizing that it was in close proximity to Sodom and Gomorrah. It looked good on the outside. But when he got there, we see what quickly happened. He succumbed to the pressures and became carnal in his thinking because he took the easy way. And of course, Abraham was blessed by taking the other. When David looked on his neighbor's wife, he would have never committed adultery had he seen the tragic consequences of the death of a baby, Bathsheba's son, the murder of a brave soldier, Uriah, and the violation of a daughter, Tamar. The bait keeps us from seeing the consequences of our sin. So don't take the bait. Don't disobey God. Notice what James says next. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. This is when it actually physically manifests itself in our life. It brings forth the act of sin through our life. And we have to move from the position of emotions... Emotions often lead us into sin because we don't control those emotions. And the resisting of temptation is an act of intellect and the will. We have become an emotionally feelings-driven society, haven't we? Where truth is irrelevant if we can create a narrative that appeals to a person's emotion. As one wrote, he said, Christian living is a matter of the will, not feelings. Often I hear believers say, I don't feel like reading the Bible today, or I don't feel like attending a prayer meeting. Children operate on the basis of feelings, but adults operate on the basis of will. They act because it is right, no matter how they feel. This explains why immature Christians easily fall into temptation They let their feelings make the decisions. The more you exercise your will in saying saying a a decisive no to temptation, the more God will take control of your life. You have to make the decision beforehand. 
You have to make the decision not to fall into that temptation, knowing where that temptation will lead, that is to sin, and sin will bring about the consequences that God would spare you from. And ultimately, notice what ultimately concludes. And sin, verse 15, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's the ultimate conclusion. Satan has come to steal, to kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. Temptation is the vehicle in which Satan will use, the method that Satan will use to allure you away from God, and we must be conscientiously aware by knowing God's word, recognizing that temptation, not taking the bait, and not being destroyed by the sin that would to, would to follow. The four D's. Number one, desire. Number two, deception. Number three, number three, diso- disobedient. And number four, death. As Paul wrote very clearly, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I found this incredible quote from the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who himself was put to death by the Nazis for taking a stand against Hitler's evil regime. He articulates the process of temptation this way. In our members there is a slumbering inclination towards desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and, it's, and in its flames Uh, And it flames, excuse me. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money or finally that strange desire for the beauty of the world or of nature. Joy in God is in course of being extinguished in us as we seek all our joy in the creation. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creation is real. The only reality is the devil at that moment. Satan does not, he is not, does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with the forgetfulness of God. Keeping God in our mind's retention allows us to recognize and to resist temptation when it comes. And so he goes on in verse 16 to say, Now do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. For every good gift, every perfect gift, is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, which whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God, when He does provide for us, He provides that which is good and perfect for us. The word good there is defined as Paul would define the word good. It's for our spiritual development. 
It's for our spiritual maturing. It's for our eternal glory. For as Paul writes in Romans 8.28, for all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let us know and understand that good can be a very subjective understood word. We could apply our own definition of good, but God has a very specific uh, definition. And that definition is found in Romans 8.29, where God says that he is allowing these things for good in our life and that good is our conforming into the image of Jesus Christ. So every good, every perfect gift is from above. Paul wrote it this way, that we have been blessed with every blessing that is in heavenly places in and through Christ Jesus. That is the true focus. Understanding that today we are living for eternity, even though we are still in the temporal world. That is what God is doing. That is the good gifts in which James is describing for us here. And these come down, and that word come down in the Greek is in what's called the present participle. It's a continuous action. They continue day after day after day after day, and they proceed from the Father of lights. He is described in this way to also remind us that there is no darkness or variation or shadow of turning within God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can count on the consistency of God's character in the understanding that good and perfect gifts are continuously coming our way in and through Him. Talking about the unchangeability of God, one wrote, it is impossible for God to change. He cannot change for the worse because he is holy. He cannot change for the better because he is already perfect. This is the God in whom we serve. So let us understand that God is with us and he is showering us with the gifts of knowing that every blessing that is found in heavenly places is ours. Now you may ask yourself, well, what are those blessings? Paul goes on in the first chapter of Ephesians to list off every single one of those blessings that you have received in and through Christ Jesus. And then in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. God saved us. The new covenant was still somewhat of a mystery to the early church. They believed it. They understood it to a degree. But the understanding that we are now new creations in Jesus Christ after coming to Jesus Christ, that we have been born again, that the Spirit now lives within us, was a new concept to these new Christians. But he indicates this here. He brings this to our attention because he wants us to know and to understand that we no longer have to live under the dominion of the old life, under the control of the wants and the appetites of our flesh. We can now live in a new way because we are a new creation in Christ. We have the power to resist in and through the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of God's word, the temptations that would come our way from within. It is another barrier that God gives us. 
to help us to look within and to realize that we have been born from above and now possess a divine nature in and through Christ. John wrote it this way in 1 John 3, 9, when he says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Meaning that we do not have to sin any longer. We can choose not to. When we often talk about freedom, we often talk about it in the manner of what we are free to do. In the United States of America, we have unfortunately reduced our idea of freedom to a simple means of choice. I'm a free American because there's 31 flavors of ice cream at Baskin Robbins. We were in Indiana this week. We drove Autumn down for her intensives for her graduate program. And we found this little tiny ice cream store called Ivanhoe's in a small town called Upland, Indiana. I mean, we go to some of the most exotic places on our little trips. You have. Wow. So that makes two. Uh, And we went to Ivanhoe's and we were given a, a menu. And one page of the menu were the various sandwiches that they offered. The other three pages of the menu were various flavors of ice creams and various ice cream dishes such as sundaes and shakes. And I believe that there were over 200 of them. 200. And we had one of each. No, I'm kidding. And it would be easy to say, oh, it's wonderful to live in a free country. But the element of choice is not the only A choice of doing what I want to do or choices to select from. But freedom is also the freedom not to do something also. I don't have to do that. And the freedom that God gives us includes the freedom, the choice to not have to any longer. I don't have to live the way I lived before I came to Jesus Christ. I don't have to live that way anymore. And so he reminds us of our new birth in Jesus Christ. He concludes by saying, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when you are in trials, don't let them move you to temptation. And don't speak before you know. Listen pray and wait on God. Don't just immediately react to your circumstances in anger, but understand what God is actually doing. Through the trials, he's producing the Christian character, refining you to be more like the image of Jesus Christ. The temptations will draw you away from that, but understand that those temptations do not come from God. They come from within you and your old nature. And you have the ability to resist them. As one wrote, he says, therefore Christians should not be swift to speak and complain when trials come. Rather, they should be swift to hear God's word, trust it, and obey it. After all, God works out his will in our lives when we are patient and not when we are angry. 
So in this section of Scripture, there are three barriers to, that God is giving us through His Word concerning temptation. The first barrier that would keep us from sin is knowing the judgment of God, number one. The second barrier, the first being negative, the second one being positive, is understand the goodness of God. Understand the goodness of God. It is incredibly helpful to know that God truly has your best in mind in all that he does. And when you surrender to that fact, temptation becomes less appealing. And number three, the third barrier that God gives us is knowing that we are a new creation in Jesus Christ and we are not obligated to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. As Paul said, walk in the spirit, therefore you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Warren Worsby concluded, and I'll conclude with this. God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains. Satan never gives us any gifts because you always end up paying for them dearly in the end.